0: I'm just going to share things tonight. I'm Andrew Steen, and I'm going to introduce you to uh, Wendy Quay, who's uh, speaking tonight. And um, Wendy uh, has practised law in um, Melbourne, Australia for several years, before coming to England to do a degree in theology at Berkeley um, She also completed her Certificate of Christian Apologetics in 2006, and co be um, Um, Wendy tells me that, um, she'll speak as she chooses, but she tells me that um, she's going to address this issue of uh, suffering and evil and God's love, Uh, particularly in in the area of the natural world. Of course, it's a huge subject and possibly um, one which none of us can ever even, you know, be somehow inappropriate to regard it as a subject you ever fully comprehend your intellect because somehow that's not the right approach to only think of it in that way. But insofar as, as we can, of course it's important that we do try to get our head around what is going on in the natural world. So that's going to be the focus for tonight.
1: Thank you for having me. Um, It's a pleasure to be here, or at least I think it's a pleasure to be here. Diana asked me to do this talk, I think last summer actually, you spoke to me quite a long time ago, and at the time it seemed like a really good idea, Um, and so I said yes, but um, about two weeks ago I just sort of got up and I thought, what have I done? Because this is an issue that people have been wrestling with since time immemorial, and actually... We haven't really come up with very many answers. And so if there is one thing that you will walk away with tonight, one thing that you can know for sure is that you have before you a living example of the fact that at least some suffering in this world is entirely voluntary. So, (laughs) however, (laughs) it's an old one, but it is true. (laughs) Now, my main concern this evening, though, was that in addressing this group, what I... What I was wondering was, is there something, um, are there perspectives that you as scientists in particular might be bringing to this topic? Might you be wanting a different take on this issue? And on reflection, I thought about it and I thought, well, actually, in some respects, yes. And in some respects, no. Because, in one sense, on the one hand, you're all students of the natural world. Um, And you have perspectives on nature that perhaps the layperson just doesn't have. And I think that will throw up um, unique questions, some unique ideas. But on the other hand, we're all human beings. And we're all just trying to make sense of the ups and downs of life. And in that respect, I think we're all on the same page. So when we look at the footage of China and Burma, and I myself have been really burdened by the earthquakes in China, actually. I mean, I think of 70,000 people missing or dead, many of them children. And I look at that, and I, I do ask, why? And actually, I don't ask this as a theologian, but rather I ask it as a human being and as a person of faith. My Lord God, why? Now, just to give a little bit of background about me, um, as Andrew said, I'm not a scientist. Um, I did do um, an undergraduate degree in biology, but that was rather a long time ago. And I really focused on my other area of study, which was law, and now I'm studying theology. So I can't engage um, at an overly scientific level for you. That's going to be your job tonight, actually, if you game. But what I can do, what I would like to do, is give you some theological lenses through which you, as scientists, might be able to view the issues. And given that so many of you here are working in the natural sciences, I thought what I'd do is focus on this problem of natural evil. So what do we make of the Burma hurricanes? What do we make of the earthquakes in China? What about the death that's inherent in the evolutionary process? That sort of thing. And the perspectives that I'll bring will be Christian. I will be using the Bible as an authoritative source of information about God and about the nature of God. And so I will be working from a distinctly Christian perspective. I'm aware that many of us here tonight share that perspective. um, And hopefully what tonight will do is help you to articulate your Christian position a little bit more clearly. I'm also aware that there might be some people here who... Don't share that perspective and are perhaps somewhat sceptical of the Christian framework. If that's you, what I'd like to do is just invite you to try on the lenses. Um, Just try it on for size and see if you find it helpful at all. So what I'd like to do tonight is just lay out the biblical picture as best I can. And then if you're game, I thought we could have some group discussions, some small group discussion on some specifically scientific perspectives. And then I want to finish by drawing your attention to the uniquely Christian answers or uniquely Christian responses um, to the problem. And hopefully we'll have time for general Q&A at the end. Okay? So let's have a look. I think the first thing we need to do is to state the question. This so-called problem of evil. And it's often put this way. People will say something like, if there is a good and powerful God, how can he permit evil to exist? Surely, if evil exists, either this God is not so good or this God is not so powerful. The two things seem to be in contradiction. And some people will take it a step further and they will say, if evil exists, maybe this God doesn't exist at all. And when we look at the case of natural evil, we modify the question slightly and we ask the question, could a good God have created a world that looks like this? A world in which we do have animal suffering. We do have an apparently combative evolutionary process. We have genetic mutations and earthquakes and tsunamis. What does this type of world say about God if indeed he exists at all. And at this stage, what I want to do is we just need to note that we are distinguishing here between natural evil and moral evil. So moral evil is what we're dealing with primarily when we look at human evil, questions of war, cruelty, injustice, evil that is the result of a choice of a moral agent. And for the Christian, the demonic world would, would come under this category as well. Okay? Natural evil, on the other hand, is the evil or suffering that arises just out of the world doing what it does or animals doing what they do and the fallout that results from that. Um, And we've had some quite spectacular recent examples. In either case, the big question at the heart of it all is, what does this say about God? Ultimately, Where this question leads most people to is the character of God. How can we call him good? How can we call him loving? And in the very deepest sense, at that experiential and pastoral level, and we mustn't minimize the significance of this, the question behind the question is often, if God can allow this, does God love me? And I think our title this evening puts it well, is a loving God possible in the world that we have. So what I want to do now is just sketch for you the Christian framework for explaining natural evil. I use the word explaining very cautiously because I actually don't think we get a clear explanation in the Bible. To talk about answers to the problem of evil is, in my opinion, a fallacy. We're deluding ourselves. We can't answer this question, but what we can do is construct a framework from the biblical picture that might help us to come to grips with some of the issues that are raised. And what we see in the cases of both moral and natural evil is that the defining event is what theologians refer to as the fall, um, which was essentially a human failing. But we'll work towards that, so let's have a look at, at things in overview. Now, to begin to make sense of things, what I think we need to do is look at three issues. Firstly, I want to look at the nature of God. Who or what is it that Christians call God? What's he like? The second issue is what is the nature of creation, the world? What is the nature of the things that we see around us? And thirdly, and this is Important, even when we're looking at the question of natural evil, what is the nature of humanity? That's very significant for us here. So, firstly, what is the nature of God? What do Christians say that God is like? And I think from the Christian perspective, the most appropriate place to start is with the person of Jesus Christ, because it is in Christ that we claim God is revealed. And so, we have scriptures like John chapter 1, which talks about Jesus as the word or Jesus as God made flesh. And we look at Colossians 1, who speaks of Jesus as the image of the invisible God. And then Hebrews 1, Jesus is the exact replica of God. And so to see what God is like, we look to Jesus Christ. And when we contemplate him... There are three major implications that I think arise out of that that are relevant to our question today. The first thing that we see is that creation is creation and God precedes creation. The Christian understanding of the world is that its existence and our existence is as a result of the exercise of the will of God. Creation is creation It is not deity. And the God who created it, the God whom we see in Christ, is eternal and came first. And so the starting point for the Christian in anything, really, is is that we begin with God, not with matter. And from a theological point of view, I find this interesting anyway, it's actually from the New Testament that we derive this doctrine that God created out of nothing. Um, when we look at the Old Testament, Genesis 1 and 2, we look at images of God creating order out of chaos. You could derive from that an assumption of pre existing matter. But when you look at the New Testament and John chapter 1, it's very, very clear God came first, matter came second. God created out of nothing. The second thing we see when we look at Christ is that Christ is the goal of creation. Colossians 1 says, all things were created by him and for him, which means that creation itself has a purpose. Its existence is not meaningless. Rather, the machinations that we see, whether we consider them progressive or otherwise, um, they're all headed towards a goal, and that goal is Jesus Christ when he comes to take full rule over all things. And this doctrine paves the way for what some theologians like Colin Gunton um, call an eschatological view of creation. Eschatological meaning end times. And in this case, the ultimate destiny or purpose of creation. And thirdly, it was through the work of Christ on earth that was his life, his teaching and then his death and resurrection, that we come to understand something very unique about God, something that's very unique to Christianity, and that is that God is Trinity. One, yet three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And these three persons are so tightly knit together in a relationship of love, that they are one. And we see this particularly evident in the Gospel of John, but if you look closely, it's all the way through the New Testament. And particularly in Paul's writings, he he brings it up over and over again, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And this conception of God is unique to Christianity. It's incomprehensible in one sense. But if it's true, the implications are massive, and for the purpose of our conversation today for the, about the problem of evil, it is here that we find our definition of goodness. And it is the fracturing of this goodness that we recognise as evil. One of the earliest songs that I learnt as a kid was um, God is Love. Do you know the one? Praise him, praise him, all you little children. Yeah, God is Love. Um, but, so I've sung it for years, sung it all my life. But it's really only very, very recently that I've started to try to get my head around this concept. What is this phrase actually claiming? It comes from 1 John 4. In verse 8 it says, Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. But what on earth does that mean? It is a meaningless phrase if God is a single individual sitting up there in the heavens. God is love. What does that mean? Such an understanding of God is only possible if we understand God as persons in relationship. Love is meaningless unless it is within the context of a relationship. And with a God who is Trinity, a God who is by definition a relationship between three persons, we have love. And we have love that does not need any other point of reference. And this is important because in the Christian worldview, we say we do not need evil to recognise good. What we know is goodness and love, and we see that in our God, and it is by this standard that we recognise what is evil. There is no dualism here in Christianity. We know love, and it is by the brokenness that we see, by this standard, that we judge what is evil. And so the character of God is love. So we've looked at who God is and what he's like. What then does this say about the nature of creation? Well, firstly, if God is a relationship of love between three persons, and this is our creator, this all takes us back to a beginning that says... This world we live in, this created universe, was something that was born out of love in a very real sense. The universe that we live in is the child of loving parents. Now, if you have a look at the book of Job, Job is a fella in the Bible who was undergoing immense suffering for no particular reason, and he cries out to God. He, he looks at God and he says, God, why? And when God finally answers Job, all he does is he just reels off this amazing list of what he's created. So he says to Job, Where were you when I laid the earth's foundations? Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Have you ever given orders to the morning or shown the dawn its place? Do you know when the mountain goats give birth? Do you watch when the doe bears her fawn? And when I read this, I thought, God's just showing off. Is he just flexing his muscle here or something? But actually, as you read the text, there's a real sense of God's delight in his creation. God is just enjoying what he's made. And I love these verses about... Uh, the one that struck me was these verses about the ostrich. You know, he says, The wings of the ostrich flap joyfully. She treats her young harshly as if they were not hers, for God did not endow her with wisdom or give her a share of good sense. Yet when she spreads her feathers to run, she laughs at horse and rider. God made ostriches because he loves them. You know, even if they're kind of funny and a little bit silly, he delights in them. And I think what we see here is what Vinoth Ramachandran refers to as the gratuitous initiative of love, there is something about a relationship of love that is creative, and those of you here who are parents i 'm guessing might know something about that, but even those of us here who aren 't parents, I mean, how many songs and poems have been written in the name of love you know and if you want to get a little bit more abstract when we look at, um, for example, me and my work and when i 'm doing theology, and I stumble across some exciting new um, insight. I want to go out and tell people because it's very exciting. There's something about me that wants to express a new discovery that I've made about God out of the love for my work. And for those of you who are working as scientists, you know, you're in the lab and you discover some new procedure and you're so excited you move to publish, do you not? Creative. (laughs) But that's probably less romantic, but anyway. But God is within his very being, love. And the universe we live in is the purposed outworking of this love. We also see that it is a creation then in which love can flourish and which starts to move us towards our question, is a loving God possible? Because I want to ask us, you know, what type of world would we need for love to be possible? What will we need to have? This little gizmo is called an iMate jam. It's great. I have great affection for my iMate jam. In fact, much of my life is stored on this little machine. And it is so easy to use that even I, the technological imbecile that I am, I could easily set it up so that every Valentine's Day, in fact, every day, it flashes me a message that says, Wendy, I love you. I could do that. I haven't. But if I did do that, um, I don't know that actually I would feel particularly loved. Love on autopilot doesn't quite cut it somehow. But I have friends um, who have a four-year-old son, and his name is Sam. And when I go over there to visit them, if I'm really lucky, Sam will climb into my lap and he'll say, hello, Auntie Wendy, and put his arm around my neck and give me a kiss. And if that happens, frankly, I'm chuffed. I can't force Sam to do that. He's four. <laughs> can't force him to do that. Any older than that, actually. But, you know, there is something about love that unless it is freely chosen, it's meaningless. Unless we have the possibility of making real choices, we need to be, f- we need to be free to make choices, otherwise love can't exist. And this means that I need an environment in which I am able to choose to love or to not love if I so wish. So I need a world in which my choices have consequences. And so if I pick up a plank of wood, I need to have a real choice as to whether I build a boat with it or hit you over the head with it. And I need to be able to actualise my choices in a meaningful way if love is to be possible. And so in a real sense, to have a world of love, we need a world in which the possibility of evil is also present. And so we see a creation that does work in accordance with physical laws. Wood stays wood, regardless of what I or anything else might do with it. Actions and choices have real consequences. So that's the nature of our creation. Thirdly, what is the nature of humanity? And here we do go to Genesis 1 and 2. And in Genesis 1 and 2, we see two accounts of how God creates humanity. Firstly, in Genesis 1, we see that God creates human beings last, the height of creation. And in Genesis 2, we see God create humanity out of the earth, but unlike the rest of the animals, God breathes life into man and woman. And significantly, we are told two things about human beings. Firstly, we are created. We are not God. We are created beings. The second thing we see, though, is that we are made in the image of God. And so in a sense, there is something God-like about us. Now, there's been an enormous debate for centuries amongst theologians on what this phrase, in the image of God, actually means. Now, I actually see this doctrine as multifaceted. I think it means a lot of things for us. But one key element of the doctrine that I want to highlight today is the idea of royal representation. Genesis 1 and 2 were written within an ancient Near Eastern context. And in that culture, to be an image bearer was to be a representative of royalty. It was a relational concept. The image bearer is defined by his or her relationship to the king. And there is also a functional aspect to this in that humanity is then given the command to fill the earth and subdue it. And to rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So that's Genesis 1, verse 28. And so there is a sense that human beings were given a mandate by God to rule over the earth as God's representatives on earth. Now, the significance of this for our purposes today becomes evident when we get to Genesis 3 and this event that I've already referred to that we call The fall. Now, many of us here will know the story of the serpent who tempts Eve, the first woman. The serpent comes along and tempts her to eat the fruit of a forbidden tree. Whatever you want to make of these opening chapters of Genesis, whether you see them as factual, mythical, true myth, whatever you like, the theological points that come through are these. What we see at the heart of the fall is humanity grasping at being God. The serpent asks Eve, Did God really say that you must not eat of any tree in the garden? And Eve says, No, no, just one tree. And if we eat from that tree, we will die. And the serpent responds, You will not surely die. Your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. And so Eve ate, and then so did Adam. And in trying to be what we were not, it seems that we lost a part of what we were. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. He says, we wanted some corner in the universe of which we could say to God, This is our business, not yours. He called this the embracing of an utter falseness. There's a certain absurdity to the fall, I think, that, that human beings could presume to try to outwit God and then try to hide from him. And the result of this event, however it might have occurred, is depicted as cosmic. It's like whacking an ice pick into a sheet of ice. And what we see is the cracks radiate far beyond the point of impact because what has happened is that God's delegated representatives who are supposed to rule over the earth have effectively quit their post. There is a rejection by humanity of what we were meant to be. And so there is a systemic fracturing of the order of things. And if you read through Genesis 3, you will see a woeful tale of fractured relationships between, firstly, the man and the woman and God. They hide from God. You see fracture between the man and the woman. They start blaming each other. And so interpersonal relationships are affected. The woman begins to suffer in the most natural act, the act of childbearing. And so we begin to see some combativeness between humanity and nature, and indeed, combativeness between ourselves and our own bodies. We see conflict between man and the ground, um, you know, another break in relationship between us and nature. And then we see a fracture of relationship between the serpent and the rest of nature. So nature fights nature. There are human consequences, but there are also cosmic consequences. And it is this event, the event of the fall, that the Bible pinpoints as the point of frustration of the purpose of creation. And so in Romans 8, Paul talks about all creation groaning. And it is here... That we need to look to for our explanation at least for the introduction of evil and suffering into the universe because creation is still creative it's still dynamic and it is still one in which choice is possible and therefore love is still possible but if relationships are fractured it can hurt That's the theological lens (laughs) of why we have natural evil and indeed moral evil. And what I want to do is just push the pause button here. Um, This is the closest we can come to a biblical explanation as to why evil and suffering are in the world. So in quick summary, it was created good. There was a primeval event of chosen rebellion by humanity against God which we call the fall. And it was through this event that we have certainly moral evil entering, but Romans 8 also suggests that at least at this point, some of the natural evil we see is due to the fall as well. And what I want to do here is give you guys the chance to kind of layer in some of our current theories of origins and speciation, theory of evolution and the creative process, that sort of thing. And I'm wondering if we can break up into some discussion groups now. Okay.
0: And you to take over. so yeah. um, what, what Wendy would like us to do now is divide up into groups of a size that we feel comfortable just discussing among ourselves. So I guess that's five or six. And well, Wendy, you're telling us what you yeah. think is the sort of thing we want to talk about, which is which is issues well, I've got, such as yeah. I sort of coined animal kingdom before humans were around, that sort of thing, or whatever whatever is bugging you, I suppose. Yeah.
1: Just to give you some pointers to start with, um, what I thought we just some questions to throw out is firstly, how might we understand pre fall creation? You know, how do we get to that point of humanity? And secondly, how do we explain the fall in light of our understanding of how things came to be? That'll give you something to chew on, I thought. Okay. Us theologians would find it really helpful if those of you in the sciences could give us some way of articulating the fall that is plausible for the scientist.
0: <laughs> okay. So what we'll do is we'll... we'll I'll just help you to find yourselves in the group. So we'll have about 10 minutes. About 10 minutes and then after that, if, if the group could have a spokesperson who would maybe just let us all know what sorts of issues came up for you, and then we'll hear again from Wendy. Okay.